Welcome to the New Life Baptist Podcast. Our mission is to love the Great Commandment, live the Great Commission, and lead one more to Jesus Christ. We thank you for listening, and we hope that you are encouraged today as we dive into God's Word. Amen. As we continue to worship this morning, let me invite you, let's take the Word of God, open the Word of God, and turn in the Word of God to Mark chapter 3. Mark 3 this morning, and here we arrive to the text, and and we're coming after a a kind of a, a big moment for Jesus with the religious leaders of that time, because he heals a man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. All right, there's a little bit of a showdown there, and, and the religious leaders, after that moment, after that showdown, they start planning the execution of Jesus. How are we going to get rid of this man? How are we going to kill this guy? That's what they start planning. And so as we continue in Mark 3, Jesus begins to move on from that scene with his followers, a huge crowd. We've already seen crowds, but now a huge crowd, bigger than ever, begins to gather, and they press in around where he is. The demons, we see the demons, they publicly confess his deity. We've not had yet in Mark a human confession of the lordship of Jesus Christ, but we've had the demons confess the lordship of Jesus Christ. And here the demons are, and they're, they're, ca- they're calling upon him as the Lord. They know who he is. And then Jesus, he calls the 12. He calls 12 ordinary men. Men prone to mistakes, men prone to all kinds of misunderstandings, bad attitudes, slow learners, lapses of faith, bitter failures, faults, and all kinds of character flaws that we could note here this morning. And yet, even with the knowledge of who these 12 ordinary men are, Jesus still calls them. He still calls, he still chooses them to carry out the gospel and to turn the world upside down. And so as we kind of summarize that part of Mark chapter 3, here's what I want you to understand this morning is that you should never estimate the extraordinary power of God when he calls ordinary people. Don't ever underestimate the extraordinary power of God when he calls ordinary people, because that's you. Moral failures, mistakes, all kinds of problems, and yet God can still choose and use you. But not everyone's on board, all right? Some people don't believe it. They don't believe he is the Lord. But as C.S. Lewis famously has noted, some people think he's a lunatic and some people think he's a liar. Not everyone believes that he is the Lord. And so they've come to this conclusion. They've arrived at this conclusion this morning. And here's the challenge I want to lay before us in our text. What about you? Who do you say Jesus is? Is this Jesus thing just too much? Is this just too crazy? Is this too far out there? Does it cost too much for you to follow Christ? Is this just not for real? Like, hey, I can do this on Sundays, but I don't really want to do this on Monday through Saturday. That's not for me. Is it those things or is it life changing? Does the gospel take over your life? In our text, what we're going to see this morning is the danger of deliberate denial. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, if you will, with me. Mark chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 22. Or start in verse 20, excuse me. It says, then he went home. In the crowd that has been gathered, they gathered again, and when he went home, he went to most likely Peter's home. That's the place where he was staying. That was the place where he healed Peter's mother-in-law. So they're going back in this Capernaum town, and here they are again, and they gathered again, the crowd, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. It's the word of God. We're going to... 
scroll through a lot, but let's stop here, pray, and ask God to use it as we submit and surrender to his authority over us. Father, we thank you for the living and active word and pray that your living and active word will do living and active work in us. Father, I pray for the Holy Spirit to come and teach us the things that we don't know. Give us the things we don't have. And God, make us, as we surrender and submit to your authority, make us into your image. Father, speak for your servants are listening. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And God's church says today, amen. 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 You can find your seats. Keep your word open. You can also turn the backside of the worship guide. We're going to plug in some things as we travel and walk together through the word. But there's going to be two major things that are going to happen here in this text. Two things that are going to come about as we see the lordship of Jesus Christ almost on trial. Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he the Lord God himself? That's the question that we're going to answer. And here we're going to see the very first thing that happens is we see the rejection of his family. All right, the rejection of his own family. Go back to verse 20. It says, Then he went home, and when he gathered again, so they could not even eat, the crowds were so big they couldn't even operate. And when his family heard about it, they were in Nazareth, but they went out to seize him. They went out to arrest him. They went out to grab him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. He's completely lost it. Now, it's one thing for your enemies to work against you, right? It's one thing for people who you already know that are against you to work against you, but it's a whole other thing when it comes from within your own camp. Right? These are my people. I mean, that's betrayal on the ultimate level. All things, his family thinks he's completely crazy. They think he's lost his mind. He returns home to the host headquarters at that ministry point, and the people gathered in such a way, the crowds were so there to see him do miracles and healings and to hear him teach, they become an interference. All right, it's a public safety issue so out of control, the disciples and Jesus, they can't even eat. Right? We don't know what that looks like, but there are just people everywhere. And when his family back home in Nazareth heard all about the chaos, they express some level of concern because what are they going to do in verse 21? They're, they're coming to get him. All right, they're coming to get him. And when you read verse 21, you could almost read it like a rescue mission. But who are they rescuing? Are they trying to rescue Jesus from the crowds? Or are they trying to rescue the crowds from Jesus? Right? Who are they trying to really rescue? What are they really trying to do? Because despite growing up with Jesus, for whatever reason, what we know is his family is convinced that he's crazy. That he is not who he says he is. Mary and Joseph, they knew, right? No doubt about that. They knew that the Holy Spirit was a part of that. They knew from dreams. They knew from the angels. They knew who Jesus was. They absolutely had no question about who the person of Jesus Christ was from the promises and the prophecies of God. But his half-brothers and his half-sisters, they don't believe. John 7, 5 tells us in John 7, 5 that his family did not believe in who he was. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him, and now they see that he's lost it, that he's gone off the rails, that things are getting out of control, and before they let this thing go on any further, before they let him go on this travel road anymore, what are they going to do? They're going to perform an intervention, right? That's it. We're going to stop this thing. We can't let him go on. He's completely lost his mind, and so we're here to perform an intervention. And they come to the house, and when they come to the house, it's so overcrowded, they can't even get in the house. And so what they do is they send a word to say, hey, Jesus, your family is here for you. Go to verse 31. Scroll down. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside of the house, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, hey, your mother... And your brothers, they're outside, and they're seeking you. They're here for you. And he answered them, 
Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's an interesting response. Right? Because it's like this interruption. He's teaching. He's trying to eat. There's, there's a crowd gathered. There's ministry happening in the middle of all this. He allows this interruption to come, and, and he uses this interruption as teaching material. Well, since you brought it up, let me go ahead and use that to teach. Let me go ahead and use that to teach you a lesson about who, what it really means to belong to me. Now, we know who Jesus is, so we know this is not some dismissive not some passive-aggressive shot at his own family because Jesus perfectly loved his own family. When you go and read about Jesus, even on the cross with one of his very last moments on this side of eternity, what does he do? He makes sure his mother Mary is protected by John. John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. Right? This is the moment he says, I'm going to care for my mom. Even in my death, I'm providing for my family. And we know he loved his siblings because we see them in Acts chapter 1. They're gathered in the upper room. Right, they're there in the upper room. His brothers and his sisters have believed since the resurrection, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, they have now believed in who Jesus is. And so we know that he loved them enough to be their savior, and he loved his family enough to forgive them from their sin. All right, he loved his family. So this is not a shot at that. In fact, two of his half-brothers wrote two letters in the New Testament, James and Jude. James and Jude, two of his half-brothers, they wrote Two letters in the New Testament. And both of them, when you go and read the letter of James, you go read the letter of Jude, both of them, neither one of them introduce themselves as the brother of Jesus. They never make that connection. What do they do? They say, James, a servant or a slave of Jesus. Jude, a servant, a slave of Jesus. Here, they think he's a lunatic, but in a very short period of time, they're going to call him Lord. It's amazing that this is what made them truly family is that they surrendered and submitted their life to the obedience of the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what makes you family, church, because he says that. Here is my mother, here are my brothers, whoever does the will of God. And so what we're going to see here is that fa family is found in faithfulness. Our being a part of the family of God is going to be found in your faithfulness to the will of God. That's what he says in verse 34. Looking about those who are around him, he said, here are the ones that belong to me. Here is my true family, the people who do the will of God. And so if you're going to count yourself family, if you're going to call yourself a son or a daughter of God, because we're not all children of God until we come to repent of our sins and receive the inheritance as children of God. We're just people. But until then, when we become children of God, it's because we have obeyed. We've surrendered. We've submitted. We've given our lives over to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so the heart of the Christian life is obedience. That's the heart of the Christian life. It's that you do the will of God. You, you obey the word of God. And you allow your life to be determined by, by the ways of God. Right? This is how you're living your life, all by the word, all for the will. If we're not obedient, the question really is, are we truly even saved? If I don't do the will of the Father who sent me, am I really a child of his? If, if I'm not even a slave or a servant, if I don't belong to him, am, am I truly following Jesus? Because we don't obey to become saved. We obey because we're saved. I don't, it's not earning anything. There's, there's two ways you can get to heaven. Either it can be human achievement 
or it can be God achievement, and the first one always fails. There's no way you can achieve salvation. There's no way you can earn your way to heaven. It is all through God. So I don't obey him because I, be, to become saved. I obey him because I have been saved. I've been changed. So that means salvation is not determined by obedience. Salvation is demonstrated by obedience. It must be fruit. Or you must produce fruit. This, that living faith is, 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 has to have obedience. And so if you claim to know God, if you claim to be a family member of God, but your life is not changed by knowing him, that is a certain sign that you possibly, most likely, absolutely don't even know who God is. First John, where are you getting off on this whole obedience thing? First John, by this we know that we have come to know him. Here's how we know. If we keep his commandments. That's how you know if you know God. Do I do his word? Do I do his will? Or do I say, God, that, that sounds good for John the pastor, but that certainly doesn't sound good for, for me, right? How do you know if you know God, if we obey, if we keep, if we live his commandments? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, you've proven yourself to be a liar, and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Don't take my word for it. Take his. Right? One way that we know that we're a part of the family of God is if we're faithful to live out the word of God and do the will of God. Does that define your life? Because it's easy to say, yeah, I love Jesus. But, but it's easy for me to say I love my wife, but it's another thing for me to demonstrate it, right? It's one thing for me to say, hey, honey, I love you, but it's another thing for me to show it, to live it, all right? Words, lips must always match your life. And so we understand that our love for God is proven by our loyalty to God. And that's, again, why James and Jude define themselves as servants, not, not, not brothers, but servants, because we're here to do the will of God. Now, here's some good news. The beauty in all of this, if you're like, man, that's me, I don't obey God, therefore I must not know God. The beauty in all, all this is, is this, that the very people who thought he was crazy, they came to confess him as their Lord and Savior. Now, what, what's the application there is that, that it's not too late. That there's an opportunity for you to say, yeah, man, I've, I think this whole thing is nuts, but I can see the truth. Now my eyes have been opened, my ears can hear, I know that there is a Savior who's died for me. And so I want to challenge you to understand that there's this rejection, but there's also this opportunity to repent, right? That we see this invitation to confess and come to Christ. And so we see the rejection of his family, but what family really means is doing the will of the Father. But the second thing that we see here, and here's going to be some meat for us this morning, is we see what happens in the refusal of our faith. What happens when we refuse to have faith, when we refuse to believe. It goes on in verse 22. We're going to see that middle section here of our text. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. So Jesus is preaching, Jesus is teaching, he's casting out demons. The crowds have gathered, they continue to grow. Everywhere he goes, people are seeking Jesus out. There's more and more ministry, more and more testimony, more and more uh, momentum. And all of a sudden what we see here is that the, the kind of the, the big boys from Jerusalem come down to check him out. 
right? They're here to say what's going on and what, let's see what's happening with this testimony. We're hearing about this in Jerusalem. Let's go see. So they send down some men to go check Jesus out, and they come to a very quick conclusion. Jesus is possessed by Satan. That's their determination. They see the works, they hear the testimony, and they say, he's possessed by Beelzebul. He's possessed by Satan. He's possessed by the prince of demons. The only way that he can do what he does is by the power of a demon. That's their judgment, is that Jesus is of Satan. That's their judgment that Jesus is demonic. And you're like, whoa, that's a stretch. That's an extreme. Why would they go to that extreme? They have to. They either have to attribute the works he does to God, or they have to attribute the works he does to Satan. There's no other person to attribute miracles to. They can't say, well, he just is a miraculous person. No, he has to have some kind of power source. So either he's from God, or he's from Satan. And since they're unwilling to say he's from God, the only conclusion they can arrive and they want to perpetuate to the crowds is he's got to be from Satan. Right, there's no way this man can be from God because he's a blasphemer. He claims to be God. And so they are convinced they won't acknowledge and they assume that he is from Satan himself. And of course, Jesus says, that's completely illogical. That makes no sense, guys. Look at verse 23. He called them, to the, called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? He's like, I was thinking, let, me, let's, let me ask you a question. Let's think about this. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless what? He first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words... He's like, Satan's not going to do that. Guys, that makes no sense, right? Satan wants to destroy the works of God, not his own works. Why would he destroy his own works? If he was really coming to destroy the works of God, he wouldn't destroy his own. He would start attacking you guys. Otherwise, if Satan is fighting against his own cause, he would simply be destroying himself. And so he lays out this illustration that reality is if you want to go in and you want to take over something that isn't yours or take over something that belongs to someone else, you have to be stronger than the other guy. The only person that can enter a strong man's house is the one who actually binds a strong man, which is exactly who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He's bound up the power of Satan. He has prohibited Satan from working. He has come. He's eternally stronger than the enemy. He has exposed the demons for who they are. He has set people free who have been possessed by demons. And he has plundered the strong man's house because that was the promise in Genesis chapter 3. That the snake, the serpent may bite the heel, but that man, the son of man, is going to crush his head. And here he is. He's like, I'm not from him. I'm from the Lord, and I've come in the power of the Father who sent me, and I've plundered Satan's house, and I'm calling people to my own self, and I'm going to save them from their own sin, and I'm not going to pull this off if somehow that strong man is going to stop me. That strong man is never going to be stronger than me. right? He's plundered the house, and by their own logic, if he's not Satan casting out Satan then he has to be greater than Satan. And because he is, the only, one Satan, the only one greater than Satan is God. And so if you line that out, he is God. That's what he's showing them. I, I'm stronger, I'm God. But more than that, the Holy Spirit has testified that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's go to verse 28. We're going to get into a very strong language in these couple of verses. It says, truly I say to you, 
all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Okay, that sounds strange, right? I mean, what do you mean there's a sin that's not forgivable? I thought Jesus came to forgive sins. I thought he came to forgive sinners. Isn't that why he came? Doesn't this sort of contradict that? And, and so I want you to see what's happening in this text. Jesus has declared the grace. Jesus has declared the mercy of God. He's declared the gospel, the forgiveness of all sins, that he came, remember, to save sinners, not the healthy but the sick. And all sinners can find forgiveness if they do repent and if they do come in faith. But there is one exception that is completely unforgivable, and that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. All right, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What, what does that mean? What, what do you mean blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Because the reality is every single one of us has blasphemed, right? We've all rejected God at some point because we were all born into sin. Every single one of us has rebelled against God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And so every single one of us in this room, if you are a child of God, at one point you were an enemy of God. Right, but God showed and demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? So we know that at one point we were dead in sin. Prior to coming to Christ, if that's who you are this morning, at one point in your life you were an enemy of God. Right? You made yourself an enemy of God because of your sin. And so at one point we were all blasphemers. We were all against the truth of God. And so we can be forgiven for that. I mean, Jesus would even say that in Matthew 12, that you can be forgiven against my name, but the one thing that won't be forgiven, what's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? The one thing that he says that won't be forgiven is the one who comes all the way. Full knowledge of the truth, full exposure to the gospel. You know everything there is to know. You, you have been exposed to everything there is to be exposed to, but you make the final conclusion to still reject Jesus as your Savior. You make the final conclusion that he is a liar. The Holy Spirit, his testimony about Christ that points us to truth, that the testimony is a liar. And what Jesus says, that is what is unforgivable. Now, I don't want that to create in us like, whoa, is that, is that me? Have I done this? And so I want you to see the clarity here. If you have the full revelation of Jesus Christ, if you know all there is to know, you have a full understanding of the gospel that he is the savior for your sin and you know exactly what you need to do to believe and you determine that Jesus is a liar, you determine none of this is true, you determine that he's of Satan, that he's not a Holy Spirit, but he is an evil spirit. If you've determined all those things, there's no escape from that. Right? It's a willful, knowing, rejection, denial. And when you willfully, knowingly have everything there is to have and say, I don't want Jesus, he gives you over to exactly what you want. Unforgivable sin. I mean, what else is there? What else do you need? What other testimony do you have to have? I mean, there's nothing else you can give. God's not like, well, I haven't given you all of it. Oh, there's a little secret stuff over here you need to know about. Maybe you'll believe that. There's, there's nothing else. The full revelation of God is right here. There is no other testimony. There is no other prophecy. There is no other person that's going to come uh, and tell you something new. Everything has been fully revealed right here in the word of God. And if you come to the final conclusion that this is all a bunch of garbage, 
then that is a final sin that you will have arrived to. Here's the reality. You can be exposed to the truth of Jesus and somehow still never experience the transformation of Jesus. You can be fully exposed to the truth of Jesus and still regretfully somehow never experience the transformation of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 6, we spent a long time in Hebrews uh, this past year. In Hebrews chapter 6, though, we covered a little bit of this here. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, full knowledge, you know the Bible, you know the gospel, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who've been a part of the church, who have witnessed salvation, who who have seen people baptized, and you have shared in the Holy Spirit, you've been a part of the body, you've, you've worshiped with us, you've been a part of what God is doing here, and you've tasted the goodness of the word of God, you sat under the teaching, like, man, there's good news in this, if this is all you've experienced in the powers of the age to come, and you've seen God do only things that God can do, and then turn away, after having all of that and then still falling away, still rejecting, still despising, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. How scary that is to be like, I have heard it all, John. I have seen it all. I've been a part of the church my entire life, but I don't buy it. I don't believe it. In my heart of hearts, it's not for me. That is what the word of God has determined. That's what Jesus has determined to be the unforgivable sin. It's called apostasy, willful, final rejection of the truth of the gospel when you have the full understanding. Something we said in Hebrews that I want to say again, I think it's just a, it's a scary phrase for me, is, man, how depressing it would be to go to hell from New Life Baptist Church. All right, you're here. You're hearing the good news of Jesus, that he came to save sinners. You're hearing the gospel, that he came to give you life and life, eternal life abundant. How foolish, how sorrowful it would be to just turn and walk away and say, I want nothing to do with that. There's an invitation for you to come. There's an invitation for you to confess. There's an invitation for you to come and give your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, but to willfully and knowingly say, no, I refuse is to crucify the Lord Jesus all over again and to join the chorus saying, crucify him, crucify him. I want nothing to do with Jesus. But the invitation is here, right? The invitation is now. And so this is not all doom and gloom. There is absolutely judgment, but God is absolutely a God of mercy a God of grace, that even if you were some people who thought this was all too crazy, even if you were people who were trying to like, hey, let's stop the whole Jesus movement, even if you were like Paul and you were killing Christians for your own glory, he can still save people like you, right? That's the good news is that if you're here and you're hearing the gospel and there's an invitation for you to come, it's not too late, right? You can repent. And so the challenge that we have here this morning is don't settle for an event, but strive and seek an ongoing experience, Right, don't make this your experience, church. Don't be like, I did Sundays, I did it for 40 years, and then you'll arrive at the kingdom of God like the people in Matthew 7 and say, hey, we cast out demons. All right, we did the works of God. We prophesied in your name, to which God will say what? Depart from me. I don't know who you are. I've never known you. Come. Confess. Don't leave here condemned in your sin but be changed 
by the gospel of Jesus Christ who came to save sinners. We thank you for listening. Be sure to click the subscribe button on this podcast so you don't miss out on any and all of our future content. We pray you were encouraged by the word of God today. If you feel that the Lord is leading you to make a decision or have questions, you can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or at our website at newlifebaptist.faith.